The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the word of God, and we are studying in the life of David, which you cannot see there because I have frozen the screen. We are, in fact, going to be studying in the life of David. We are actually looking at another rebellion that takes place. As we look at this in 2 Samuel chapter 20, we find out about another rebellion that takes place. Before we do that, of course, it's imperative that we take a moment to prepare our hearts for the study of the Word of God. This silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to gather here at the church. I thank you for the folks that are here, present today at the church, but also for those who are listening online right now. I pray that you would bless all of our time that we have right now, that we might focus our attention in on what it is you're trying to teach us this morning, setting aside the distractions of our busy lives, that we might be able to take this moment and quiet our souls and be humble and ready to be teachable so that we might hear the things that your word has to teach to us so that we might dwell on these things and we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, I actually have some things I want to start with and then, uh, of course, the scripture of the week. I'm going to spend some time on that at the end, Uh, but I'm going to start with a lesson And this was something I talked about during a Romans class, but I think it's something worth considering in terms of uh, all of us at this particular time when crazy things are going on. In Acts chapter 5, some of the apostles are being brought before the council, and, and they're being brought before the council because of what they've been teaching. And when they brought, when, when verse 27 of Acts chapter 5, it says, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our, foref- of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It goes on from there and there's a discussion. In fact, Gamaliel is pretty wise. He says, look, you probably ought to pay attention and let these guys go. I'm not going to go into all of that. But the point is, what did they say here? When it came down to they were given instructions, strict orders not to do this teaching about Christ. And they said, sorry, we have to obey God. We can't obey what you're giving us as a rule. We have to obey God. Well, in, and how does that work in regard to the teaching in other places? Paul in Romans 13, we haven't gotten there in our Romans study yet, but Paul says in Romans chapter 13, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has oppressed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of, of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. It goes on from there. So are these things in conflict? No, not at all. Actually, we are supposed to be in subjection to the authorities until such time as the authorities are asking us to do something that is in direct opposition to what we would do for God. So, for example, uh, there's a lot of people who have talked about this. There's a a lot of conversation. You've all heard it with regard to the whole thing with the masks, right? We have the mask orders and whether we're supposed to wear masks. First of all, right now, I notice none of you are wearing, we are not under, under Governor Abbott's executive order, we are not required to wear masks in a local church. That's part of the executive order. I read through the whole silly thing. And then 
There's other things that are given as far as where masks are to be worn and what businesses can be open and what businesses cannot and how there are to do different things in all the businesses. And, you know, you've read it, you've heard about it. And uh, so there's restrictions and all that. Well, the idea of wearing a mask is if I wear a mask, am I being disobedient to God? And the answer is no. Is there anything about wearing a mask that makes me disobedient to God? Now, if you put something over my mouth where I can't speak, and so now I'm up here behind the pulpit just looking at you, (laughs) now we got a problem, right? But the mask wouldn't keep me from being able to speak where you can hear me. The fact of the matter is there is no conflict when it comes to an order and an order from the governor that says that you need to wear a mask in certain situations. But you look at California, and that's the example I brought up on Wednesday night. Example I think I brought up last Sunday. You look at California, and what that governor has said, he has said, you, you, we, can, we, cannot, we cannot gather and meet as a church. And for that matter, he went so far as to say, you can't even have a home Bible study. Right? So if we decided that we wanted to meet at, at a house and do a home Bible study while we couldn't go to church, he said, no, you can't do that either. So... In the great state of Texas, the governor, Governor Abbott, he came out and said that we could still gather together and we could worship and we had to practice social distancing and we had to do different things. All of that was part of it, right? So that's all, that's all good. He, the governor of the state of Texas never said you cannot assemble together and worship together. And so we as a local church, while back... We made a decision. I prayed about it. I came to a faith conviction. I talked to the deacons about it, and we made a decision to go virtual. And so for a while, this church was empty except for three people. I was up here preaching from the pulpit. Jesse was back there guarding the door, and Lindy was back there uh, running the recording desk. And that was it. This place was empty. But we did that on our own. That was something we decided we would do. So right now, I mean, I say to myself, if I lived in in the state of California... And the governor issued that order. Where would I be right now? I'd be in church. The doors would be open and we'd be having church. And if the governor wants to send the police in here to stop us from doing it, he can do so. I have to obey God because my Bible says we are not to forsake the assembling together. Right? It's one thing if we as a church voluntarily decide to go virtual. That was a decision we made on the basis of our faith conviction. It's a different thing if the government tells us we can't. That crosses the line. And that's the thing you always want to consider with regard to subjection to authorities and when it stops. See, if it's just a law that you don't like, that's not, what, that's not the criteria. That's not what you can use as a criterion. You can't say, well, I don't like the speed limit, so I'm going to drive whatever speed I want. No, that's not what we're talking about. The point is you have to examine whatever the law is and you have to say to yourself, okay, if I obey this law, am I disobeying God? And the ruling that we have in the state of California, which isn't even a law, by the way, that hasn't gone through their legislative branch and turned into a law. That's just an an order that's come from the governor. If that, that law is in direct contradiction direct contradiction to the things that the word of God says. And so at that point you say, I'm sorry, I have to obey God rather than men. And like I've told you all before, when the day comes where it's wrong, when the day comes where it is wrong to preach God's word from this pulpit, and if I can be arrested and thrown in jail for preaching God's word, I hope you come see me because that's where I'm going to be. I am not going to stop preaching the word of God. And if that means I get arrested and thrown in jail, so be it. So be it. So if you look at it, are there, what laws do we have in place in the state of Texas today that are in direct com, uh, contradiction to what we're supposed to do as unto the Lord? There really aren't, there really aren't any. I mean, I can't think of any. I've told you, I mentioned, I think on Wednesday night or last Sunday morning, I don't remember which one, there was an argument made in years past with regard to taxation. Uh, if you look at, you know, a lot, a lot of people don't even realize this, that prior to some changes that happened when President Kennedy was in office, there were tax rates in this country that were absurd. <laughs> they were absurd. I mean, people were being taxed at 90% tax rates. You know, I mean, things that were just absolutely ridiculous. And people made the argument at that time, you can actually keep me from being able to do the things of God through taxation. If you tax me so much that I don't have any money, then I can't even give to my local church. Now, 
I, I mentioned it on Wednesday night and, and maybe last Sunday morning. I don't remember. The, the problem I have with that is my Bible tells a story about uh, a woman who came in with a single mite. And she gave that one little mite that she had. And Jesus said that was more than anybody else had given. So I, I, I reject the argument about taxation. I don't think that's a legitimate argument. I, I don't get me wrong. I'm not for high taxes. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying that's not a good argument. The, the, the fact is we are blessed that we have not been put in a position, at least I have not experienced it in my lifetime, where I had to choose. Am I going to obey the law of the land, or am I going to obey God? I can tell you which one I'm going to do. I hope you're in the same place. I hope you're in the place where you say, well, if the law ever says I have to do something that's contrary to what God says, I'm going to do what God says. You know, I hope you're in that place. But thankfully, we haven't been there yet. But in California, and see, it's not that far-fetched. There have been things up in a country just north of us where in Canada, they proclaim that certain things that are in the word of God could not be taught from the pulpit. If you taught those things, then it was considered a hate crime. Yes, it's considered a hate crime. I can't say, you tell me I can't say things are sinful. I'm going to say things are sinful because <laughs> I want you to know what God says is a sinful uh, act, of, act of behavior. If whatever it is that you might do, I want you to know that's a sinful thing. I'm, I, that needs to be proclaimed from the pulpit. And for the government to tell me that I can't proclaim that, that goes right back, if really, if you, if you know anything about history, that goes right back to what our, the founding of this country was all about. Uh, they were in a system over in England and elsewhere where they were being told, they were being told by the government what they, what they could teach. And, and that was the whole idea, was that they did not want to be under any form of a, of a governmental-controlled religion, if you will, right? They wanted to break free from that so that they could preach whatever they... They knew the Bible said from the pulpit. They didn't want the government telling them what they should be preaching from the pulpit. We're moving ever closer to that. So just, yeah, you look at yeah, that's right. That's exactly what's happening, for example, in China right now. They're being told what they can say and what they can't say. There are, Christi- there are Christians in China, by the way. Yes. Well, that's already being done, by the way. So the idea of it being removed from the Bible, uh, it's just interesting. I just looked at a discussion just recently and uh, let, me, let, me, let me turn to this passage. This is important. This is important. I didn't even expect this to come up, but we're going to go ahead and look at it anyway. Let's see. Well, let me do it this way. All right. I'll do my own little search here. So 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9, and 10 Let me read it for you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a very good translation, by the way. I I, I might change a few things in here, but this is a very good translation. The word right here is, is homosexuals. And I was looking at a discussion that was being made about this very passage. And in their Bible... You talk about water. This, is, this wasn't removed, but it was watered down. This, this was translated abusers of self. It's not what that Greek word means at all. <laughs> not at all. But see, they were basically doing a Bible translation that was politically correct. You know, they weren't translating it what the Greek actually was talking about. They translated it because they didn't want, they didn't want to put that word there because then that sounds bad, right? Oh, that sounds bad. We're telling homosexuals that that's a bad thing for them to live like that but they so they translated that as abusers of self yeah so it may not be removed but it'll be whitewashed right it'll be covered over and translated in such a way that it's made to look like something else so maybe not complete removal but the changing of the words and that's a bad thing right we don't want to get involved in that but my point i'm going back to my original point in general, the law of the land is something that we should be obeying. There, that, in fact, we can do that as unto the Lord. You can get out in your car and you can pull out on that highway and you can go less than 75 miles an hour as unto the Lord. <laughs> I see some of you don't look happy about that. But you can do that. Uh, it's, it's a reality. You, we can obey the laws of the land as unto the Lord. But when it, again, when it comes to that point where there's a law passed that's in direct contradiction, can you obey that law as unto the Lord? I can't. 
I can't do it. I've got to obey God rather than men. Very important concept to understand. Very important. All right. Uh, let's get to our life of David study. Another rebellion. So we already had all this big mess, right? We had Absalom, right? Absalom did his whole thing. And there was a massive rebellion there. And David had to flee. And Absalom's been put down. And now David is being brought back into Jerusalem. Remember, all of this has been taking place. David is being brought back into Jerusalem. He's got a whole bunch of people who've met him and are bringing him across the Jordan back into Jerusalem so that he can be king again. And about that time, a Benjamite named Sheba leads a rebellion, right? Now, a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. So all the other ones, see, see, this is what you want to picture. They're bringing him across the Jordan and they're bringing him into Jerusalem so he can resume his reign as king. And in the process of all of that, there's this Sheba guy makes this big proclamation and a whole bunch of people split off. Because originally all the people were bringing him back into Jerusalem, but a bunch of people split off. But the people of Judah remained faithful. They stayed there and they were going to continue to bring David into Jerusalem. And by the way, Sheba here is described as worthless. I had to highlight this. I do, don't do a whole lot of, of Hebrew, but I know all of you enjoy reading the Hebrew, right? This is your favorite thing. Uh, it's just little, little squiggles and doodles. Yeah. Can you read that? Yeah, of course not. But it, it's, 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 it's okay. But what you have here is ba. Li-ya-al. That's how I have it spelled out here. Baliyaal. Now, what does that sound like if you say it real fast? Baliyaal. Belial. You ever heard the term Belial? Yeah, Belial's from the New Testament. What concord has Christ with Belial? Right? And the word actually means not just worthless, it means wicked, ungodly. That's what that word is all about. So they translated it worthless in the New American Standard, but it means wicked. It was a wicked man. A wicked man, Sheba. Who made this proclamation? You notice the people of Israel didn't hesitate to abandon David to follow Sheba, while, of course, the people of Judah remained faithful. And what, what, was, what was his plea that he made? The plea that he made was, what portion do we have in him? He's, a, he's from the tribe of Judah. We're not from the tribe of Judah. Why are we trying to support this guy? We don't have any portion in him. He's not from our tribes. Why do we want to have him? By the way, I should have put a link on this, and I forgot to do that. His cry would be repeated later. Uh, in another rebellion, much later, 1 Kings 12:16. Notice how similar this sounds. This is Jeroboam, right? The rebellion here. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. Doesn't that sound pretty similar? <laughs> it's almost exactly the same language, right? And so later on, there's another rebellion that takes place not... You know, not the one we're talking about now with Sheba, but that language gets used again in another rebellion. What portion do we have in him? You know, that's, that's the cry that, that uh, causes the people to respond. Upon his return to his palace in Jerusalem, he took care of those concubines. Remember that whole thing about the concubines? We're going to look at that. Now, this is part of David's sin problems here, for sure. Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but he did not go into them, so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Now, is this proper behavior for King David? Should he be having concubines and multiple wives and all that sort of thing? No. No. I mean, he was supposed to have one wife. But David is, what, he, what is he doing? Anybody? Can anybody tell me what David's doing when he has multiple wives and he has all these concubines? Well, it's adultery, absolutely. But why do you, why do you think that, that the pattern was there? Bingo. She's got a spot on. The other kings of other nations, that's exactly what they did. They had multiple wives. They had their concubines. And he's bowing down to exactly what they were doing. You're spot on, Deb. Deb. That's exactly right. That he's bowing down and behaving just like the other kings. And that's not what the king of Israel is supposed to do. The king of Israel is supposed to be distinct and different. And this is an area of sin. This is a problem, uh, an area of sin for David. 
Uh, of course, we know these were the concubines he had left behind to guard the palace. I think that was a weird decision in the first place, but that's what he had done. In 2 Samuel 15:16, it says, So the king went out. That, this is where he's fleeing. He went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Strange decision, but he did. Oh, I don't have any problem with that. It's just, why, you know, knowing what happened. But no, but knowing what happened to them, what happened to them when Absalom came in, it was probably a poor choice on David, David's behalf to make that decision because of what Absalom ended up doing. That's my point. It's like he put, them in a, he put those, those women in a vulnerable position, in my opinion. Uh, of course, and then they had been defiled, as we see here in 2 Samuel 16. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you also will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, see, here's the thing. That was also a very common thing at the time, is if you wanted to show who had been king before you, that you were taking over, this would be one of the things that they would do. And David should have known that. David should have realized that that was something that might happen. So he put those women in a vulnerable position. Now, at this point in time, he makes sure these women are provided for, uh, but he no longer was having sexual relations, sexual relations with them. He, but he made sure they were provided for. They were taken care of. He just no longer went into them. That language of going into them has to do with sexual relations. But he made sure that they were taken care of. Um, and again, this whole thing is all more of the consequences of David's earlier sins, right? All of this that he's facing, the rebellion that's going on, uh, the fact that he had to take care of these women when he got back because of what had happened to them, he's dealing with the consequences of his sins, in particular the Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite incident. Now David then ordered Amasa to assemble the armies of Judah. Now, this is kind of interesting in a way, if you think about it, because who is the head of the who is the head of the armies of Israel right now? Joab. But he orders Amasa to go do it. The king said to Amasa, call out the men of Judah for, for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went, went, went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. So he's given, he gives him three days. Now, why do you think it's important? Uh, important that he sets a timeline here because a rebellion has just begun right and he doesn't want to allow that rebellion to to take form to take shape for and he goes on to even talk about the fact that uh, sheba could fortify himself we're going to see that in a little bit there is a it's a time critical situation here right because a rebellion is 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 taking place among the people of israel so he puts a timeline on it sets it three days if I, as far as I'm concerned, this is evidence of David's intention to replace Joab. He's, he says to say to Amasa, this is the last chapter we looked at, Second Samuel 19. Say to Amasa, you, are you not bone, my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So that's what he's doing here. He's actually taking action with regard to what he said in chapter 19. Now, uh, Amasa is David's nephew he had been Absalom's general, right? So that's why the, what he said to him and why what he's doing here is so significant. Amasa had actually gone with Absalom and had been leading the forces under Absalom. Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now, Amasa was the son of a man. It goes on from there. They're actually, he's, a, he's a, actually Joab's cousin. Remember when we talked about that? He's actually Joab's cousin. And so, but he, he was actually the one who was leading the army for Absalom in the rebellion of Absalom. And yet David shows him grace, and he says, actually, you're going to be the leader of the army in place of Joab. There were things that Joab, that had, he'd been doing that David wasn't happy with. And so he says he's going to do it, and then here, this is the action that he takes to show that he's, in, he's legitimate in his attention. That strict timeline that he gave him of three days, he did not meet, and that becomes significant as we look at the next section. When he took too long, David directed Abishai to go after Sheba. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. Yeah. 
So Joab's men went out after him along with the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Did I skip a verse there? I might have. Yeah, well, there was because he, because he had delayed longer than the set time. So then he says to Abishai, go do this, right? That's the whole point. Go do this. In other words, David can't wait, right? So he told Abishai to take Joab's men, Joab's men, right? Those are the ones who had fought under Joab. David was concerned Sheba would fortify himself. And when he says escape from our sight, he's talking about his intelligence network. Have you noticed Throughout all this time that we've been studying on David and the different things that have happened, David has always had an intelligence network at work. People who are out there scouting and spying and seeing what was going on. And he's concerned that Sheba is going to be able to fortify himself and then escape from that intelligence network so that he can't actually know what he's up to. Abishai went out and pursued Sheba with Joab's men and then some of David's personal guard and the mighty men of valor. So I wanted to highlight that. You notice it says the... Herathites and the Pelethites, that is David's personal guard. Those, those are the men that are David's personal guard. So he took some of David's personal guard with him. And then when it says the mighty men, these are the mighty men of valor. The mighty men of valor. And it doesn't say he took a few. It says he took all of them, right? So he took the mighty men of valor and went out after and pursued him. So he had quite a, he had quite a group with him pursuing Sheba at this time. Amasa was murdered when he met Abishai and his men in Gibeon. This is just a horrible tale. This is such a horrible tale, but this is what happened. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them, right? This is Abishai. He's leading out the forces, right? Because Amasa's taken too long. So Abishai goes out with the forces to go after Sheba. Amasa meets them at the large stone, which is in Gibeon. Now, Joab was dressed in his military attire. Now, see, when David told them, Abishai to go out he didn't say take Joab he said to take Joab's men remember I pointed that out he said to take Joab's men well sure enough when he went out Joab was with him right Joab was with him Joab was dressed in his military attire and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at his waist and when he went forward it fell out so here he is he's got all his garb he's dressed up for military conflict and he's got his sword with him Joab said to Amasa is it well with you, my brother? Now, they're cousins, but still, you know, it's his cousin. Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. He wasn't following the social distance guidelines here. <laughs> so, but he grabbed him by the beard to kiss him. And this was, not, this was not uncommon. This would be a show of affection, right? He's going to show him affection uh, as his cousin. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand. Because so, interestingly, they leave, they leave some details out here. The sword fell out. Obviously, Joab picked it up, right? He picked it up and had it in his hand. And so he grabs him with his other hand with his beard to go to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand. So he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again. And he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. What a horrible tale, right? So Amasa's there. He's going to join up forces with them. And then Joab, what do you, what do you reckon Joab's problem is? He's getting replaced, <laughs> right? Amasa is going to be taking over the command, and Joab's not happy about it. If Joab's shown us anything, he's a jealous guy. He's, he's not exactly the mo- been the most godly leader of all the people, but he's jealous, Amasa's taken over. By the way, I want to point something out. It says he struck him in the belly with it, poured out his inward parts on the ground, and did not strike him again. So I want to tell, I want to tell you a little tale. Uh, it finishes here, and he died. And he died. Well, we're going to see that, right? He died. In the, the, to show you, we, all, we, often, we often talk about different things, and we're concerned about, I mean, you know, everybody's concerned about this coronavirus, and all the things that are going on, and we talk about things in terms of what this, doing this and doing that and then doing the other thing. Your days are numbered. God has numbered your days. And an amazing example, and it fits right with this. That's why I want to emphasize the fact that it goes on to say, and he died. In the Civil War, there was a soldier. There were two soldiers, actually. This is an incredible story. There were two soldiers. One soldier got shot by a musket, I believe, whatever it was, he got shot and the bullet 
grazed his arm. He had basically a small wound on his arm. And that soldier got sick with an infection that came from that wound and died. There was another soldier, this, and this is legit. You can go look it up for yourself. There's another soldier who got impacted by a cannon blast and he got ripped open and his intestines were literally laying on the ground, right? Poured out his inward parts on the ground. His intestines were literally laying on the ground. Imagine what doctors were like back then, right? We're in the Civil War. This medic goes up there and takes his intestines, puts them back inside his body and sews him up. That man lived, right? So it's important when this is documented here, he struck him in the belly with it and poured his inward parts on the ground. It did not strike him again, and he died. We need to know that he did die because that's not necessarily, as I just told you, that's not necessarily a mortal wound, but he did die, and the, and the Scriptures makes that clear. Now, there stood by him one of Joab's young men. Now, we don't, he's not identified. All we know is, is Joe, one of Joab's young men. And said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Well, you know, Amasa has just been killed by the sword. And so he's saying, okay, well, whoever, whoever's going who's going to follow David and whoever favors Joab, let's follow Joab. But, verse 12, Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. Right? So Joab, not only does he kill him, I mean, what a jerk. He, he stabs him with the sword and he falls down, and he's just going to leave him lay there, right? He's going to have him lay there in the middle of the highway and die slowly, as you pointed out. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the man saw that all the people stood still, in other words, all the people that were following along with Amasa were basically sitting there going, oh, my gosh. You know, they're just crazy freaking out because Amasa just got stabbed to death. So when, the, when his man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. Now, let me ask you a question. What, in, in one word, what does that show you? What is the one word that comes to mind that this, this person is showing Amasa? Respect. Yeah, two for two, Deb. Two for two. Respect. Because that's what Joab didn't do. Joab totally disrespected him by leaving him like that. This man is showing him respect. He takes him over, puts him in the field, and he covers him up. When he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. Verse 13, as soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, by the way, I believe when you look at this, if you think about it, this is a military situation. David sent Amasa out to lead the army. He didn't gather the army quickly enough, right? So then he commissioned Abishai to go and lead the men out. And then what ends up happening, they meet together. Well, who's there? Amasa's there. He's the one who David had told to gather the army and lead them out. And then Joab comes up and stabs him and kills him. Why do you think they went on and followed after Joab? Is it because they think Joab is awesome? I don't think so. I think the reason they're following after Joab is because they're for David. They're for David. And so even though Joab is not necessarily their favorite commander, they're following after him because they're for David. I have some points here. Uh, though he was demoted from command, he, he was among the men. I don't, I don't necessarily think he was supposed to be. But he tagged along and he participated in all of this. He was among the men who went with Abishai. Uh, of course, and then, like we said, he pretended to greet his cousin Amasa, but he struck him with a sword and stand Instead, excuse me, and then uh, his, again, his, his disdain for Amasa was evident when he left him to die on the road. Now, here's the thing. This is, his, this, is, this is his blood. This is his cousin. And he leaves him to die on the road. That's despicable. Despicable. Again, one of Joab's men showed him respect by moving him and covering him up. And then once he was removed, uh, the pursuit of Sheba returned, or is resumed, I should say, under Joab's command. And this, again... I have to keep going back to this. This, again, uh, is further evidence of the coming to fruition of Nathan's prophecy. In 2 Samuel 12:10. now therefore, when, remember this is what he told David after the whole thing with Bathsheba. He said, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So he has, he, this is all further consequences. See, we've had, what have we had? I mean, we've had Absalom killing 
his brother. We've had uh, Absalom being killed. We now have Amasa being killed. I mean, it just the, the number of things going on in David's own family is out of control, right? The sword shall never depart from your house. See, that's not just... A lot of times people read that passage and they think, well, that means that David's going to continually be fighting all these, all these wars. Well, that's true. But what does it say? The sword shall never depart from your house. And within his own family, within his own family, these things are coming to fruition. Now, Joab and his men engaged uh, Sheba at Abel Beth Mekah. This is a great battle. I'm going to go through this one verse by verse as in these points. Joab and his men were going to topple the city wall. If we look at verses 14 and 15 now, he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even Beth Mekah, and the Baratites, excuse me, the Barites, not the Baratites, the Barites, and they gathered together and also went after him. They came and besieged him in Abel, Beth Mekah, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. So they were... They were getting ready to knock the city wall down, right? They had a siege ramp up there, and they were getting ready to knock the city wall down. Now, keep in mind what's going on here. Sheba has taken his rebellion, and this is where he's gone. And as you'll see in this passage, don't necessarily think that the people of that city are, you know, holding up their signs, go, Sheba, go, right? Don't think that, you know, because he's just gone there to try to find a place to uh, to to fight and defend himself, but we're going to see that uh, the situation is not he's not really got the support he thinks he does. A wise woman realized the severity of the situation and came to an agreement with Joab to save her city from destruction, and that follows in verses 16 through 21. This is a really neat account here. Uh, then a wise woman called from the city, "Here, here." Please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached her and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. And by the way, this is one of many examples of very, very, we don't even have her name, but a very, very strong and wise woman in the, in the Bible. This is a wise woman right here. And she demands Joab's attention and she gets it, Right. Uh, Then she spoke, saying, Formerly, they used to say they will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute, right? So if there was a dispute, they could end it by coming to the people at Abel. They knew that there was wisdom there. Oh, my computer is acting up. Sorry. Um, And thus they ended the disputes. I am one of, excuse me, I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city. Even a mother in Israel, why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, see, she's accusing him. He's coming there to destroy their city, right? That's what she's saying. You're going to destroy the city and you're going to destroy me in the process. And Joab replied, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David only hand him over and I will depart from the city. So the whole point he's telling her, look, I don't, I don't even want to hurt your city. But Sheba, the son of Bichri, is there and he is raised up against David and I, I, I'm, he's the guy I want. right? And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And sure enough, that happened. And once, the, once Sheba was dead, the revolt was over. Then the woman wisely came to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri. So, but people did, didn't take anything to convince the people. They, he, she went and told the people, look, if we don't get rid of this guy, they're going to destroy our whole city and us with it. And so as soon as they told him that, they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. And Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. So what we've seen here is there was an uprising, another rebellion from Sheba. And again, as I mentioned when I said, he went to that city not necessarily because they were pro-Sheba. He just went there to try to get a place for fortification. And then when it looked like that city was going to be destroyed, the people of the city said, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I, think we'll, I think we'll sacrifice you instead. Now, the thing about it is, again, remember, this is a neat story because 
uh, she is proclaimed, even though we don't have her name, she is proclaimed as a woman of wisdom, and she, she spoke from a standpoint of uh, uh, calm, steady thinking, made a wise decision, went and talked to the people. I mean, so she's presented in a very positive light, and Scripture does that, does that a number of times with women. So those are, that's a good passage to keep in mind. With Sheba's rebellion put down, David restored order to his house. Now, this is an interesting account. And I'll point out some of the details of it. But in the last verses of this, it says, Now Joab was over the whole army of Israel. All that really tells us is that even though Joab had done what he did in killing Amasa, David allowed him to continue to be over the, the army. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Herathites and Pelethites. Well, that's been the case. That's, that's the same. Uh, and Adoram was over forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Now, Shiva being the scribe is different. That's new. But most of these are the same. This is, none of this has really changed, except at the end here, and Ira the Jerite was also a priest to David. All right. So again, as I mentioned, Joab was once again allowed to be commander of David's army. Uh, this turned out to be a decision that David regretted. Now, he did it. I think he did so begrudgingly. He allowed Joab to continue to lead the army. If we go to 1 Kings chapter 2, you'll see that. Now, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace. We're going to get to that. Uh, he shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on his sandals on his feet. So act according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. This is David as he's about to die and he's passing on this information to his son Solomon. He's saying, okay, this guy did me wrong. He did me wrong, so make sure he he suffers for it. Uh, But again, in his lifetime, I think he begrudgingly allowed him to continue to be the commander. And as I mentioned here, Ira the Jerite was now David's special minister Replacing David's sons back in 2 Samuel 8:18, 8, if you'll notice, we've got the same language. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Herathites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers, right? So he had his sons as his own personal minister uh, at that time. But then now, as he's reestablishing himself in Jerusalem this time, he has someone else. Ira, the Jerite, is now his special minister. Now, there's some reasons for that. Some of David's sons aren't around anymore, right? But even beyond all that, I think at this point, he, has, he himself has seen what all the interaction that's been happening between his sons and others in the family. And he'd actually, I think David now is saying, you know what, I'd rather have someone who's not uh, be my personal minister. So he's, he's uh, enlisted the services of Ira, the Jerite. So that's the story of the other, the other rebellion. I mean, David has just been facing rebellion after rebellion since he's become the king. But again, all of that is part of the prophecy, all part of the prophecy that Nathan gave, that his, his, uh, his reign was going to be turbulent. All right, Scripture of the Week. This is something we're going to spend some time on. Now, let me ask you this, and I'll let you guys decide. This is a long passage. Do you guys want to read this with me or do you want me to just read it? You're going to read it with me? All right, it's a long passage, so everybody get your breath. (laughs) Here we go. We're going to all read it. It's verses 5 through 8 that you see on the screen. We're going to read these all together. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours... And are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Peter is teaching an, an amazing lesson here in this second letter that he's written. 
He's telling us about what we can be doing in our walk and how that is important. He says, apply all diligence. See, there's, if you think about it, God really does not ask that much of us. If you really step back and think about what God has given for us in our lives, he's doing everything and asking very little of us. So salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He did everything in supplying his own son to be our substitute on the cross. And what does he ask of us? Faith. The Christian walk. Trust. Obey. Be diligent. Really, if you think about it, I can sum up the Christian walk right there. Trust, obey, and be diligent. He asks us for our diligence. He asks us for obedience. He asks us to trust him. And he does everything else. He supplies everything else. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He opens the door for ministry. He produces the effects of the ministry. All of it is given to us by God. All he wants us to do is trust him, obey what he's told us, and be diligent. Right? As Christians, we need to be diligent. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And if you remember the translation we did, in fact, I'll pull that up. We'll go through it in, we'll go through it in the translation that we did when we were in Second Peter. Let me pull that up. Where am I? Second Peter. Let's bring that up. Somewhere I should have that in here. The translation. All right. Second Peter one. Is that big enough for y'all to read? Maybe not. Let me do this. I'll highlight it, make it a little easier to see. All right, we're going to look at it in here because there's the translation. As we went through the translation, we connected some dots. It says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. Let me, sorry, I highlighted the wrong ones, didn't I? (laughs) That's funny. I highlighted the New American Standard ones. All right, let me undo all that. You goofy guy. (laughs) Just remember your pastor is not perfect. Yes. Pastor makes mistakes. Uh, let's see. Let me do that again. I highlighted the wrong translation. All right. All right, here we go. Now, for this very reason also, having applied all diligence, that's what it says. In other words, it's something that we've been doing. Having applied all diligence in your faith, provide for excellence. That's actually what it says, an excellence of character. In your faith, Provide for excellence of character. And in your excellence of character, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, patient endurance. And in your patient endurance, reverent conduct. Remember with the godliness? It's actually reverent conduct is what that's talking about. And in your reverent conduct, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, sacrificial love. Because that's the kind of love that's talked about there. Four... These qualities truly existing and abounding in you cause you to be neither idle nor unproductive in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. We got to we have to having applied all diligence. That's something that's supposed to be an ongoing thing. Applying all diligence in your faith. Provide for excellence of character. Now, what does that even mean? Provide for excellence of character. How is it that I can provide for excellence of character? Isn't it God that shapes and molds me? Isn't he the one who changed me, changes me? He's the one that make, brings about the renewing of the mind. So how can I provide for an excellence of character? What, say, I seek God, and what else did I hear? You have free will. And see, that's the thing. What do we do? What do we do? We submit ourselves to the teaching. We humble ourselves. We allow the word of God. To do it, the idea of providing for excellence of character is that we make provision every day in our lives so that we can be shaped and molded by God. See, that's the idea of the providing for. We're, you, you being here today, that's exactly what Peter was talking about. You're making provision 
that God will be able to work in you of work that provides for that excellence of character. So how do you do it? You make provision. We're not supposed to be making, this is in contrast to the idea of making provision for the flesh. We're not supposed to make provision for the flesh, but we are supposed to make provision for this. You see the difference? So we make provision. We give ourselves every opportunity, every opportunity to have excellence of character as God is working in us. In your excellence of character, knowledge. Now, this is basic knowledge because at the end of this passage, we get full knowledge. This is basic knowledge. In your excellence of character, knowledge, you have to know. So, for example, for you to come to a place where you have full knowledge, the first thing you have to do is have knowledge, right? I mean, in order for you to understand a passage of Scripture, you have to learn about it. You have to know it. You have to have knowledge. And then as that knowledge is dwelt upon in our souls, as that knowledge is put together with line upon line, precept upon precept, right? As the things all come together, we begin to, we begin to have full knowledge. But we have to allow for, allow for ourselves to gain the knowledge. We ha- you have to know God's word. You have to know what God has given to us. Knowledge is necessary. In your excellence of character, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. This kind of goes back to a little bit about what you were talking about in the book of James. The idea of self-control is that we're not out of control, right? We're out of control. Think about it for a second. Uh, how easy, I don't even have to, I don't, I'm, I'm throwing this out there as a rhetorical question. How easy is it for us to just react emotionally to almost everything that happens to us? My goodness, the things that happen all day long. If you're out driving on Highway 71 and some guy cuts you off, let me say it a different way. I said if, when you're out driving on 71 and somebody cuts you off, because that's going to happen, you can, get, you can react emotionally, right? You can react emotionally at that point in time. And I dare say I have myself personally. It's easy to do. But if we have self-control, if we're not getting tossed about by everything that comes our way, if we're steady, stable, calm, at peace in the things of the Lord, then something like that is not going to throw us all out of kilter. Self-control has not only to do with avoiding sin, but it has to do with not letting your emotions get out of control, not letting your attitude get out of control, right? Self-control includes all of those things. So certainly it is with regard to sin, but it also goes back to what you're, you're studying right now in James, the idea of of having that calmness of soul, having that being a steady believer, stable believer that does not get tossed around. So self-control. In your self-control, patient endurance. Doesn't that fit with what I was just talking about? That you can patiently endure just about anything that comes your way. I, let me tell you something, folks. My personality is such that I would not have any patient endurance were it not for God. Uh, I, patience is not a word that comes to mind when I think of myself. And uh, I, I'm not very good at being, being one who would endure much of anything on my own. And God has manifest in me that kind of character to be able to patiently endure different things in life. And so these two are connected, self-control and patient endurance. Agreed? That's a, those are connected. In your patient endurance, reverent conduct. And see, this kind of goes back full circle almost to the excellence of character, reverent conduct. Because if you have an excellence of character... That should be evident to others, right? It should be evident to others. So this is talking about now the outflow of your excellence of character. People should see it. You should behave in such a way that people can see the excellence of character that God is manifesting in you. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't sit in your closet the whole time. Nothing wrong with going into your prayer closet and praying, but come out every once in a while and let people see who you are. Reverent conduct. This is very important, folks, because we are supposed to image Christ. The world is supposed to look at us and see Christ. And as I've said countless times, you all hear me say this all the time. You're going to be a witness one way or the other. The question is, are you a good witness or are you a bad witness? Right? You're going to be a witness. People are going to see and they're going to notice. And believe me, if you're a bad witness, it just builds up the commonly held belief out there that, oh, those Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites, right? That's what you're doing is you're building up that whole thing. So reverent conduct is important. In your reverent conduct, 
brotherly kindness. Now, this is Philadelphia love. That's what this is. It's Philadelphia love, brotherly kindness, uh, showing love to others. Now, interestingly, so there's two kinds of love mentioned in here. There's the brotherly kindness or the Philadelphia love there, and that is love of the brethren. That's love of the brethren. That is a, the philos kind of love is a love where we have, we have things in common, right? We share things. There's a, there is a compatibility built into this love. So brotherly kindness or brotherly love is loving others that are like-minded with you, the love, the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's, that's the first thing he emphasizes, the love of the brethren. I find some Christians don't do very well with this, believe it or not. They struggle with other believers, I'm in my own walk. I've had believers that I had struggles with. But we're supposed to love the brethren. We're supposed to love our brothers. And then he goes to the ultimate here at the very end, sacrificial love. That's agape love. And that's the love of everyone. That's the love of unbelievers. It's the love of believers. It's the love of those who are not necessarily lovable. And every parent, everybody who's ever been a parent knows this, that you can love a child and not like them very much. And like I told you in, uh, earlier, for, or for those of you who were here before, when I was 16 years old, uh, my parents probably wanted to kill me. But they still loved me. So sacrificial love, that's an, an integrity-based love. It's based on who you are in your own soul, and you're able to love. Now, I just saw a massive discussion going on about this kind of love. Don't mistake this love for endorsement for bad behavior. Right? We are supposed to have agape love. We're supposed to love everyone, even those who are unlovable. Uh, we're supposed to have love for even those who are uh, un- unbelievers, those who are believers that are struggling. Those are, we're supposed to have love uh, for everyone. But that does not mean that you endorse their, any kind of bad behavior. Uh, somebody, I, somebody, I actually responded to somebody in this discussion. They said something about, well, we, we need to love people the way that Jesus loved them. And I said, you know what? I do love people the way Jesus loved them. And I also recognize the error of their ways as Jesus did. <laughs> did, Jesus, did Jesus just let sin slide? Or did he call it out for what it was? He called it out for what it was, but he did so in a loving way. I mean, when he talked to the woman at the well, listen to the way he approached her. He didn't, he didn't mince any words, but he did it in a very loving way where he said, oh, by the way, You've had multiple husbands, and the one you're with now, you're not even married to. But he did it in a way where did she get mad and run away and start stomping her feet? No, because he was, he was addressing the whole thing in a very loving way. Sacrificial love is critical. It's very important. People should look at you, and they should see this kind of love. And again, it's not that you're condoning any kind of bad behavior. You just love people anyway, right? There's also solutions that come with it. And by the way, it's an active love. It's not a passive love. It's an active love. And it, and it, it does. It brings about, ultimately, leads people to a solution. That's right. It leads people to a solution. If it's a believer, then you're going to lead them to, hopefully, ultimately to repentance and confession. If it's an unbeliever, you're going to lead them to uh, faith in the gospel for salvation. Hopefully, that's what it will be. Then he says something amazing in verse 8. He says, for these qualities truly existing and abounding in you. So not just that they're there, but they're there and they're abounding, right? That they're abounding in you. These qualities, if they're in you and they're abounding in you, cause you to be neither idle nor unproductive. Now, see, this is really important. As born-again believers, we can be idle and we can be unproductive. Those are two different things, folks. He's not saying the same thing twice. He's saying two different things. One is idle is that you're on the sidelines. We are in, by the way, we are in a spiritual conflict. Amen? We're in the middle, as believers, we're in the middle of a spiritual conflict, and you are on the front lines, whether you like it or not. I know you want to hide back in the back somewhere, right? But you're on the front lines. You can't help it. You're on the front lines of the spiritual battles that are taking place. The, the believer that's idle is the believer that's basically trying to sit over on the sidelines, right? Idle, not involved, not doing anything. That's the believer that's just not doing anything at all. There's just no, there's no, no evidence of the faith anywhere in this believer. They're just idle whatsoever. Then there's the unproductive one. Well, now that's not necessarily an idle believer. There are believers who are quite busy, but they're not producing any fruit for the Lord. They're busy, 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 but they're not producing any fruit for the Lord. But what Peter is saying is if these things are truly existing in you, if you have everything we just talked about, 
If there exists in you and it, and it abounding in you, then you're not going to be idle and you're not going to be unproductive. And then he says, in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what's come about as a result of all of this, isn't it? We've come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about, folks. I don't, I don't stand up here and preach from this pulpit so that you can have this memorized. Now, I would love for you to be able to, without even opening your Bible, to be able to recite an entire book of the Bible. I know people who can. I know people who can recite Ephesians, for example, from start to finish without having their Bible open. I can't do that. I don't even know if my brain would let me do that anymore. But the, but the reality of it is I don't, want, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to have this memorized if all you have is this memorized and you don't really know God. See, the key is to come to know God. And this full knowledge, by the way, this, the epinosis word that we often talk about, that epinosis, full knowledge, it's most often applied to Christ himself. That's what we're supposed to have full knowledge of is the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to have. And so here's the key. We are gonna be, we're going to be active, which is the opposite of idle, and we're going to be producing fruit for the Lord in that full knowledge of him. And that's the goal. That's what God wants for us to be. As born-again believers, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be producing fruit. We're supposed to be active in doing things for the Lord. How many of you, and nobody needs to raise their hands, how many of you have ever found yourself on the sidelines that you were basically hiding over in the corner somewhere and you weren't really engaged in your spiritual walk? It was just you were just kind of hiding over. All of us have done it. All of us have done it. But God wants us to be active in our spiritual walk and he wants us to be producing fruit, again, in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a list. This is one of these places in your Bible. The reason I highlight it is the scripture of the week. I turn to this from time to time whenever I'm doing studies in whatever book it is. It doesn't even matter. I I turn to it when we were studying Colossians. I turn to it when we're studying Philippians. I've turned to it now that we're studying Romans. But this is one of those passages that as a believer, you want to know this passage. Second Peter chapter one. Remember that second Peter chapter one. And remember that it's near the beginning of the beginning of the chapter. If you can't remember verses five through eight, remember it's near the beginning of the chapter that Peter lists out these qualities that are so important in the life of a believer. So important in terms of our our ability to actually be active, productive members of the body of Christ. He's given us a list. Because remember, this is so important. Service of the Lord begins in your soul. It's supposed to flow out from your soul and be evident to others. But we don't want to be whitewashed tombs, right? We don't want to be those who look righteous on the outside, but we're empty on the inside. There's nothing on the inside. It begins from the soul. And so look at all those char- their characteristics that he talked about, all of those things that he described. If those things are happening in your own soul, then you're going to be an active and productive member of the body of Christ. And that's what Peter was trying to encourage them to be, is active members of the body of Christ, productive members of the body of Christ. Any questions? All right. Let's go ahead. We'll finish. We're finishing a little early, but that's good. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the lessons we learned today. We thank you for the beautiful truth of your word. And we thank you for this uh, reminder that we had from Acts chapter 5 and Romans 13 that the laws of this land are actually supposed to be a good thing for us until such time as the laws of the land actually contradict what your word tells us we're supposed to do. And uh, help us to be wise, help us to make smart decisions about these things, and help us to be good citizens up to that point that we would honor you and glorify you through what we do in obeying the laws of the land. But uh, such time when it crosses over, uh, help us to be like the apostles were and uh, stand up and say, no, we must follow you and not, and not the laws of men. Uh, that's what we want to be. And thank you for the reminder from this, uh, this lesson on David. Just, uh, David just is encountering so much in terms of upheaval and rebellion and things going on left and right and his whole his whole uh, reign as king has just started in, with such turbulence, and yet we know it's all a consequence of what he did in terms of his sin with Bathsheba and the, and the killing of Uriah the Hittite. And yet, and yet, 
with all of this going on and all these consequences and everything that's taking place, you still, in your own word, Father, you have described him as a man after your own heart. So we recognize that even in a life full of turbulence and even with the sin that took place in his life, uh, he could still be a man after your heart. And that's encouraging to all of us to know that even though we make mistakes, we can still be pleasing in your sight. We thank you for that. And we thank you for the lesson from Second Peter, a reminder on all these characteristics that we are supposed to have as your children. And uh, we thank you that your word provides us instruction. We thank you that your word provides us guidance. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us these things and brings these things to mind and helps us to truly understand what it takes uh, to be that child that's walking in a worthy manner, a true disciple of Christ. And, Father, we pray that we would be true disciples of Christ and that we would indeed image him to the rest of this world so they can see him in us as we walk around. Father, we thank you for all of these things we learned today. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.